Today's scripture reading can be found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, and is on page 694 in the Pew Bible. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his, his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, gentlemen. Isn't that a great song that Emma did for uh, Operatory? I had one of those moments. Remember when we met? Is it Camp 687? Was that the name of it? And she was so little, and we were, we were put in a pair. You know what I'm going to say? And it was a get-to-know-you icebreaker thing, and it was, what's your favorite color? And she sat there, you know, cross-legged style like this for 30 seconds. What's your favorite color? Just serious as could be. And then she just looked up and said, blue. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a, I know you get tired of me sharing that, but I love that story. It's great to have all these young people helping out with worship. The Harris guys, uh, Tim was just whispering to me uh, instead of worshiping. No, no, no. He was... <laughs> No, but he was saying we. <laughs> no, but he was saying we've got a ton of young people going out doing missions this summer, which is so cool. And I think it's a great idea. He was saying we ought to just commission a lot of the young people at some point. I think that's a great, great idea. Um, this is the fourth in a series uh, entitled "After Easter Give." And fill in the blank, and, and it's the next to the last uh, in this series. Uh, we began with the Sunday after Easter, and appropriately, it was after Easter give praise. And then the very next week, we talked about after Easter give back. And it really was all about stewardship, which makes sense, because we were uh, in Romans chapter 16, where Paul talks about a collection that's being taken for the church at Jerusalem. And it makes sense, because in chapter 15, just before... Paul is talking all about the resurrection of Jesus and defending it and describing it and all this stuff. And then he goes right into talking about our need to give back, which makes sense. Micah preached uh, the other Sunday on give hope after Easter. And this morning kind of preps us for an upcoming series uh, that I'll be doing called Acting on Our Mission. It's a four-part series based on the book of Acts. And it's all about missions, which is what we are so about here in so many ways. I described you yesterday at graduation to some parents, oh, what's Brookwood like? And I said, it's the most missions-crazed church I've ever known. And then I bragged and bragged and was just so proud. But again, we need to get really focused on that for the summer. So this morning's message is, after Easter, give beyond. Now, what do I mean by that? Give of yourself in a way that's beyond what the world expects you to give. Give beyond what culture expects you to give. Even if they know that you're a confessing Christian, do they know that you're giving beyond what you could give? It really goes back to what um, our theme is, which um, Caleb mentioned a few moments ago. Follow our first love. Are we really 
doing that. Just this past week, uh, one of you gave me a copy of a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time. And I started into it. It's by a guy named Kyle Eidelman. Kyle is a wonderful preacher at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, It's called Not a Fan. Anybody heard of the book Not a Fan? Great book. And uh, encourage you to read it. But bottom line, his theme is there are a lot of fans of Jesus, but there are fewer followers who really want to go beyond what the world expects. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds those of religious folk, you really aren't living out the kingdom as you should. Not, not, not just being a fan of Jesus, not just being an admirer of Jesus, but a true follower. You've got to give yourself beyond what people expect. And so it's appropriate that we talk about that on Graduate Sunday as we celebrate Annie and Bailey and Emma as they head out and just remind them that they need to follow their first love as they go to new places, new contexts, new experiences. Now, you're familiar with this passage. It's where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. But do we understand the implications of what Jesus says here? Because really, to give of yourself beyond what the world expects is to really give up what the world expects and give yourself over to what Jesus expects. And you really got to think about the who, the what, and the where of this passage. And not just the who, the what, and the where of what it is, but really buying into the who and the what and the where of what Jesus says here. So, so let's break that down. First of all, the, the who. To give beyond yourself, you have to buy into who Jesus is. And I mean fully buy into whom Jesus claims to be. You remember, he says, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say you're Moses, some say Elijah, some say you know, you're one of the prophets. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Really, you're the king. That's really what he's saying is you are the king. Now, when you hear the word king, do you think of Jesus? And do you think of him honestly as your king, the one calling the shots in your life, the one who has dominion over your life, who reigns over your heart. True story. How many of y'all have seen Family Feud? Love it when a family member gives the dumbest answer ever, but they're so loyal. Good. Oh, good answer. You know. And, and in 2012, Steve Harvey, are any of y'all old enough to remember Richard Dawson, the original? Uh, okay, thank you. I feel a little bit better. Uh, Hogan's Heroes, kids don't even ask. It's an old show. Uh, in 2012, Steve Harvey was hosting it. And you know they always bring two people up. We surveyed 100 people for this question. And this is what it was. When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? And what do you think was the number one answer? God have mercy on you. Yes. Elvis was number one by far. It wasn't just people from Tupelo, Stephen, Ethan, others. Uh, 81 people out of 100 said Elvis Presley. Seven people said God or Jesus. Uh, Three people said Martin Luther King Jr. And finally, two people said the Burger King. There you go. (laughs) Well, how many of us would have actually said Jesus? And even if we did, would you say that with the understanding of the conviction that he really is your king and lord? King and lord sometimes can be kind of words that are distant from us, but when it really gets down to it, do you see him as the one who is reigning over your life, your heart, your direction, your decisions, the whole thing, having true dominion over what you're about and what you do and where you go? Well, at least we're not like Peter and the other disciples. We don't do like they did because they basically wanted to create Jesus in their own image, right? The Yeah, you're right. Oh, it's Brian Kessler. Okay. But true. And we never do that, do we? Give me another snarky, huh? 
Yeah, okay. You know, that's what Peter and the disciples were wanting to do. What were they wanting him to be? You know this from Bible class or Sunday school or wherever. They really wanted him to be a political, military king who was going to overthrow the Roman government and establish a new Israel. They wanted King David the sequel. That's what they wanted. So what were they doing? They were projecting their own needs, their own desires, their own wants upon Jesus, and they were creating him into their image. Well, thank goodness we are now, you know, 2,000 years in the future, we've progressed. We're now so enlightened and illuminated and, and so, so actualized and sophisticated. We would never create Jesus in our own image, would we? Snarky. Yeah, huh, exactly. True story, there's a guy named Scott McKnight. He's one of the great uh, theologians of our time. Has taught at uh, North Park College in Chicago and other places. And every year, the first day of his Bible classes, he gives college students a test. And he begins with a series of questions about what the students think Jesus is like. Is he moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party? Or is he an introvert? And so they, take, they answer these 24 questions. Then he gives them 24 more questions, a second set of questions. But they're slightly altered language. And it's students answering questions about their own personalities. Well, guess what? And Scott Minock is not the only one to administer this, uh, this little questionnaire. Professionals have done it. And the results are remarkably consistent. Everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. That's the deal. And McKnight was quoted as saying in this report, the test results also suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, often the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus more like ourselves. Voltaire said 300 years ago, you know, if God has made us in his image, well, we are now returning him the favor. I think he had... A valid argument that sometimes that is exactly what we do. Peter was wanting to create Jesus in his image to serve his needs and, her, uh, and his desires. Well, we, we do the same thing. But that's why immediately after Jesus says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the king. And Jesus says, family feud, good answer. Now let me tell you, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter takes him aside and it's that old Bible word. What does he do to Jesus? He what? Everybody know? Rebukes him. Corrects him. And Jesus, that doesn't go over well. Get behind me, Satan, Satan, uh, Diabolos in the Greek. What does that mean? Is he calling Peter Satan? No. Diabolos means obstruction. That's a great word for the evil one. He's obstructing Peter's capacity to see Jesus for who he really is. Get aside because he's not seeing me for who I am. And we allow Satan to do that to us. And then Jesus goes on to say, if anyone would follow me, they should take up their, somebody help me, cross and follow me. That, that's what's there for you. It's not all these other needs and wants and desires that you have. That's what it is. Take up your cross. So is, who is Jesus to you? Is he king? Are you willing to go beyond yourself by carrying your cross to his cross? Because that's what's on the menu. I was reminded of this by Kyle uh, this past week. Uh, interesting when you study John chapter 6 and Jesus has just miraculously fed well over 5,000 people and there's plenty of food left and the people you talk about Jesus having fans they love it in fact they camp out that night so they can be with Jesus the next morning they wake up the next morning and they realize hey where's Jesus where's (laughs) free breakfast where is it Jesus and the disciples have already crossed the other side to the lake, and they're like, man, we we missed the handout. So they all go across the lake to be with Jesus. 
And by the time they get over there to Jesus, they are hungry and they wonder what's on the lunch menu. But Jesus has decided to shut down the all-you-can-eat buffet. He's not handing out any more free samples. And then he says this to the crowd, verse 26. I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus knows that these people are going to the trouble to find him, not because they want to follow him. They want, they want free food. That's what they want. Was it Jesus they wanted? Or were they only interested in what he could do for them? Which is why Jesus goes on. In the next few verses, he says, well, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is offering himself. He's offering himself. But is that enough for them? You know, suddenly Jesus is the only thing on the menu. And a lot of them don't know what to do with that. They have to decide, you know, will he satisfy everything that I really need or am I hungry for other things? Which is why at the very end of that chapter in John chapter 6 verse 66 it says, From this time on many of his followers turned back and no longer followed. Just fans. Just fans. Many of his fans turn and go home at that point. And notice, it's really interesting, Jesus doesn't chase after them. He doesn't soften the message. He doesn't send the disciples saying, here, give them some handouts real quick so they'll come back. No, if anything, his message becomes clearer and harder and stronger henceforth. So again, are you a fan or are you really a follower? That's the question of who, who he is really to you. Is he king? Is he reigning? Is he having dominion over who you are? Who is he really to you? Well, let's get to the what and the where. And those really commingle in many ways. To give beyond what the world expects, you have to buy into what the church is and where the gates are. Let's talk about the church just briefly. Does anybody know that the Bible word for church, the New Testament Greek word, I think I saw Wes Spears, don't say anything. Uh, Ekklesia. Ecclesia. The, the latter part of that is it comes from a word klesis, uh, which means called. Those who are called. But ek, or we might say ex. What, 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 is the, what does the prefix ex mean? Like exoskeleton or exit. What, anybody, anybody know? Out. Out. Now, we are not the ecclesia, <laughs> called inwardly. We are the ecclesia. That's literally what the word church means, is we are the called out people. Called to go out from this place. A lot of us doing that this summer, and that's great, but we're called to constantly do that. And where are we called to go? To the gates of hell. A little bit of background here. Follow me on this. Because that's where the church needs to go. Yes, we, we want to get to heaven and invite others to heaven, but first you've got to go to hell to do that. This whole passage takes place in Caesarea Philippi. This is the farthest Jesus ever travels in his earthly ministry. Farthest north he travels. Farthest anywhere he travels. And it's in Caesarea Philippi. What do we know about Caesarea Philippi? It was this beautiful tourist center. It was this beautiful bucolic nature center. It was like a big botanical garden in many ways. And so people love to go there. What else do we know about Caesarea Philippi? It was the city that worshipped the god Pan, P-A-N. He was a god of nature. There was a temple of Pan there. But there wasn't just a temple of Pan there. There was this fascinating and mysterious and frightening 
gaping hole called the Cave of Pan. You can see it in pictures today if you Google it, Cave of Pan. And people wondered what that thing was about, and they were frightened to death of it, and you never got too close to it. It had real bad mojo to it. Uh, Josephus, the first century historian, said that multiple times people would tie a weighted rope or, or a cord, a weighted cord, and, and, and you know, lower that weight way down into that pit, and they never could find the bottom. It never would reach the bottom. And people were just really frightened by this and, and, and thought that there was something really dark and sinister and haunting about this place. And it moved from being known as the Cave of Pan to guess what? Later it became known as the Gates of Hades or the Gates of Hell. And that's where Jesus is sharing this. It's almost like I, I just picture him standing right there close to it because that's the one thing in Caesarea Philippi the people Remember more than anything, it's what you went to see, at least from a distance, was this place known as the Gates of Hades. Frightening place, place you don't want to go, place that's uncomfortable. And Jesus says what? Upon this rock I will build my church going out, going out as far as you can. And they have gone as far as they have ever gone in their ministry to Caesarea Philippi. Upon this rock you will build my church and go out. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I want you to think about this. Put all this together. When Jesus wants to found his church, where does he take the disciples? When Jesus allows himself to be revealed as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the King, where does he take the disciples? To Jerusalem, where it's safe? No, he takes them to the very gates of hell. He says, you go there and build church there. That's where he takes them. Go where the world is more on fire. Go where the world is more struggling. Go where there is more hell out there. That's what he's saying. Now, we've committed ourselves to this in many and various ways here at Brookwood through our local ministries, through our ministries literally across the planet. I think of, I think of True Vine. And, and I always think, gosh, whenever we go to that banquet, which is just awesome every year, and we try to dance and look like you know, idiots and everything, uh, but it's a great, wonderful evening, and it's uplifting and everything. And Ralph always just preaches an incredible sermon. And, all that. and then we leave. And those folks stay right there at the gates of hell. Are you with me? We come back over the mountain. And I'm just reminded again and again, the least we can do, at least for a time, is go back over closer to the gates of hell where people are suffering, where people are definitely in need of the gospel of Christ and bringing it to them in whatever concrete ways that we can. We do that well. We can always do it better. I think of Annie and Emma and Bailey as they're going to be kind of moving closer to the gates in a different way. I'm not saying that college is all hell. I'm not saying that. Though Mississippi College is pretty pagan, let me tell you. I, just, I still am not. I really want to go to Sanford, but blessings at MC. But I mean, truly, for you guys, it's going to be a shift. And, and it'll be... At points, you're going to meet people just even just down the hall, you know, from where you live, people who are closer to hell than you are. Are you going to take the time to be there for them and be not just an example, but a servant to them? Well, we've talked about the who, the what, and the where. Need I even mention the why? Well, it's the cross. That's why we do all of this. We're called to get closer to the gates. 
And I close with a story about a guy that I've talked about before just because he's such a cool guy from the 19th century, a guy named C.T. Studd, which is just such a cool name anyway. But C.T. Studd was the greatest athlete of his time. He was the most famous athlete in all of Europe. He was a cricketer. And he was the son of a wealthy industrialist, so he already had a lot of bank, and he was a, a professional cricketer and making a lot of money. And then one night, just by happenstance, he went to a Dwight L. Moody uh, worship event. D.L. Moody, who was kind of the Billy Graham of his day. And th- this would be like, and, and I'm not just, this, this would be like LeBron or somebody going to hear some preacher. And that night, uh, C.T. Studd went back home and sat in his kitchen and wrote checks to the Salvation Army and to uh, Dwight L. Moody's uh, ministry and to other ministries, gave most everything away and decided to go to Cambridge and study for the ministry. And there were these other athletes who went with him. There were seven in all. They were known as the Cambridge Seven. And people thought they were nuts. And, and, and they wound up going to be missionaries in China. And I've shown the picture before of them dressed. They were, they were contextualizing. They were wearing Chinese garb. And it's these very Anglo-looking dudes, you know, dapper-looking guys trying to look Chinese. And it's, it's real endearing. But what's cool is they stayed there on the mission field and, and C.T. Studd died over there. He got mail every week from people saying, what on earth are you doing? Think about that if, if the greatest known baseball player, basketball player, football player, whatever, and suddenly they just say, this isn't for me. I'm giving up all these bucks. I need to go be a missionary here. And so he got mail all the time. Are you crazy? And he started trying to write real personable letters saying, well, here's why. And, you know, he would quote scripture and all that. And send it. But he got tired of getting that mail all the time. So he wrote out a little poem. This is true. He wrote out a little poem and got it printed and just had a bunch of them waiting. So when he got one of those what on earth are you thinking letters, he would send this poem back. And it's not the greatest of poetry, but it's great prophecy. He said, some choose to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I choose to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. (laughs) That was his answer. That's what I'm called to do. You know, enjoy the money if you want. I'm choosing to follow. This is my king. This is what he would have me do. This is what I'm about. I'm not just a fan. (laughs) I'm following. There's a world out there so desperate for help, and are you willing to move closer to the gates of hell. After Easter, give beyond. I wonder if some of us in here are okay with confessing Easter, the reality of Easter. I believe in Easter. I believe he got up after three days and left the tomb. I wonder if the problem is some of us haven't left the tomb yet ourselves. Let's have a moment of meditation. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I would like for you to just have uh, a moment of conversation with God, silent conversation. I would invite you to speak with him and, and, and discern in, in your own heart right now. Am I a mere fan or am I a follower? Do I really mean all of this? Is he my king? Is he my Lord? I simply want you to have a moment of silent prayer and converse with God and whatever you need to do and to decide and to commit to that you would become the follower he so wants you to be. A follower that goes beyond mere culture. How boring that is. But to truly be a follower, what does it take? Will you commit yourself anew to him? Do that.
in this moment. Lord, forgive us when we <laughs> play the game. Sometimes how we live this out and portray it, merely portray it, <laughs> we wonder if that's even just a little boring to you. Help us to be the followers you have called us to be. Help us to be fearsome followers, willing to crash the gates of hell, willing to go to those places where we are going to feel uncomfortable, which is part of this whole calling. May we be your church that is indeed called out. Put us, as we used to say in the old days, under conviction about this. May the Spirit convict our hearts, O oh God, to be more the followers you have called us to be. Recognizing indeed that you are our King. May we lean into you and yield to you in surrenderedness as you want us to do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.